0: Hello, everyone. Before we get started, I want to give a little bit of a warning. This week's episode contains some depictions of violence, sexual assault, and a number of other uh, very heavy topics, uh, The discussions on vigilante gender violence. And so um, by its nature is a very difficult topic to discuss without getting into kind of the gritty aspects of what's involved in that. And so with that in mind, uh, we just want you to be aware of uh, what we'll be talking about and, and to give you a heads up. And, and I guess with that, we'll, uh, we'll get started. Welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Shadbourne. and with me as always is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. With us today is Dr. Rebecca Alvarez, and she's here to talk to us about uh, her book and her research on vigilante gender violence.
1: Thank you so much. Um, So I'm really glad to be here today, and um, I appreciate the opportunity to come on your podcast. So my name is Dr. Rebecca Alvarez, and I am an assistant professor of sociology and criminal justice at New Mexico Highlands University. And uh, so what we're talking about today, the topic of vigilante gender violence is the subject of uh, my new book that uh, came out in September of last year. So um, the uh, long title of the book is uh, Vigilante Gender Violence, social class, the gender bargain, and mob attacks on women worldwide. And so it's uh, kind of all there in the title. It's a, a mouthful, but it's a, a pretty complex topic and I love to talk about it. So thank you for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, thank you for joining us. And um, yeah, it's, it's uh, sort of really fascinating because this kind of, I, th- I think, intersects with a lot of stuff that we typically talk about. So I, I guess we can kind of start with with, with an introduction to sort of what is, you know, or what, what is meant by vigilante gender violence and, and sort of what's what's involved in kind of the, the core of the research that you've been doing?
1: Sure. So um, probably a lot of your listeners um, have seen, especially in, in the last 10 to 15 years or so, um, an increasing number of, you know, newspaper stories or, or cable news stories about uh, mob attacks that have taken place um, against women. Probably Uh, The single most famous of these um, is uh, the attack on uh, a woman from New Delhi named uh, Jyoti Singh, who is, you might say, the sort of textbook example um, of this kind of attack. Um, And it was actually that case that that sort of sparked my interest in uh, the topic, um, because what happened to her was uh, especially horrific and um, was especially well covered by the media. And so, at the time that that attack took place, um, I was teaching a lot, and I was teaching at several different universities, and, and driving around a lot. And um, every time I turned on the radio, I would hear, uh, you know, on NPR or wherever, about uh, this attack on this woman, and um, uh, it, it it just really haunted me. And um, you know, probably had too much time driving around, uh, time on my hands to think, um, and and I, I I kept sort of thinking about this topic and. Um, thinking about other similar types of mob attacks that were taking place uh, with women as their targets um, in other countries and in the United States. So I I hope we'll get a chance to talk about uh, what that looks like in the United States later. Um, But when I say vigilante gender violence, um, I mean um, a very, very specific type of, of gender violence. So a lot of folks uh, when they hear about my book, they think maybe I'm talking about femicide, um, which are, you know, uh, uh, killings of women um, because they're female. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, killings of village vigilante gender violence are femicide. They are a very specific subtype of, of femicide, but not all attacks of vigilante gender violence are, uh, in fact, femicide. In fact, some don't result in the um, deaths of their targets, although often they do. So, By vigilante gender violence, I mean the types of crimes against women that have grabbed headlines in recent years. They're defined by violent, extra legal and public punishment of individual women by mobs or gangs of men who see their victims as having in some way violated traditional gender norms. And so when we hear um, about this, you know when I was in the in the first stages of of writing this book, um something I would frequently hear, apart from the femicide question was, you know, oh, are, are you talking about lynching women?" And, you know, my first sort of reaction to that was was to take a step back and say, "Whoa, you know, that's a, a term that, you know is is very specific to the u s. South, and it's a term that's very racialized, right? And so, Uh, At first, I was reluctant to use that term, but as I continued writing and and continued my research, I I realized more and more that um, that was actually a very accurate term to use in terms of uh, these attacks on women and and, and to to compare vigilante gender violence to lynching because very many of the uh, same characteristics uh, are present in these kinds of attacks. So um, often the victim and perpetrator profiles are very similar if you simply substitute uh, gender for race. And so that's a sort of a, a definition, a simple definition of vigilante gender violence.
2: So when you say that you were adopting, you know, felt more comfortable using the term lynching because of the similarities across all of these cases, what kind of similarities are we seeing with perpetrators?
1: Sure, so we have a lot of um, uh, research on sort of uh, profiles of a a typical person who would engage in lynching at the American South. And it uh, typically wasn't wealthy folks um, who were out in the streets lynching folks of color. It was um, uh, the working class, it was often farmers, it was lower middle-class people, sometimes middle-class people, but more often than not, um, the, the folks who were involved in lynching were the people who had the most to fear from people of color as an economic threat. And so the great uh, parasociologist, I call her a parasociologist because she never uh, really got a formal uh, sociology PhD uh, due to gender and race discrimination in her day. But Ida B. Wells, um, some of you may know that name, um, was a sort of famous uh, civil rights heroine. And so she went out and collected data on you know the the, the circumstances surrounding uh, lynchings of people of color by white folks in the US South um, at great personal risk to herself. And uh, so she built some of the first actual you know, data sets. You know, she was really engaging in, in an early form of data journalism. And she gathered some of the first data sets uh, on you know, kind of who perpetrators and victims were um, in in lynching cases. And so, uh, very commonly, um, the, the victims of these cases were people who, in some way, were perceived as, as posing an economic threat to uh, lynchers, or, you know, were were people who, for example, um, you know, owned local stores, local businesses that um, posed a direct threat to, you know, some white-owned business um, that existed across town. And so, you know, the uh, uh, you know, putative reason for these lynchings um, were that uh, black men uh, were, were being accused of, of raping uh, white women and that that was sort of the pretext that was used uh, for lynching. Um, but again, you know, when you kind of um, got down uh, to the real data, you know, and, and and kind of looked past these sort of sensationalist newspaper accounts of the day, you know, a very clear picture started emerging. And so other sociologists, you know, since the days of Ida B. Wells, so she was, she was writing um, sort of uh, at, at a critical time in American history, at the sort of um, you know apex of of lynchings in the U.S. South, and other later sociologists picked up on her work, and uh, you know kind of created you know bigger data sets. Um, they had access at that point to more data, and uh, uh, there was a famous uh, paper that came out um, about uh, 25 years ago um, that analyzed uh, the cotton harvest, and so um, it was it was really interesting to see how lynching sort of peaked around the time of cotton harvest uh, in the US South. And the implication um, that the authors made was that it was a a way to sort of economically intimidate other people of color um, into doing the low-paid and and, high-risk wage labor um, of picking cotton. That, That thread. Of um, economic motivation um, sort of feeds through um, with vigilante gender violence. So one sees the sort of um, you know quintessential or, or textbook victim, right? In, in these cases is often uh, a woman who is a sort of upwardly mobile in society. So in the case of Geeta Singh, um, again, sort of the the textbook case of um, this phenomenon, she was um, a young woman who was about to uh, take, she had just taken actually um, her exam, her final exams um, for physiotherapy and was slated to start her physiotherapy um, residency the following day. And so the uh, a, a physiotherapy degree um, in India is a degree that affords a fairly significant amount of um, social prestige more so than uh, it would in the United States. And uh, you know, Jodi's parents um, were farmers. They were you know people who had um, you know uprooted themselves from their rural village and moved to the capital city in order to create a better life for their daughter. And everything went into uh, preparing their daughter uh, for physiotherapy school. And so she was sort of on the cusp of of attaining this um, you know th- this this triumph, right, for her family and for her her own personal narrative. And the attackers in her case you know they they attacked her on a bus uh, because she was out after dark um, alone with a boy and the attackers were all men who fit a sort of um, downwardly mobile or, or stagnant economically stagnant sort of a profile they were also people who had moved from rural villages to the capital city to try to make a buck, but they weren't doing so well, right? They were having to turn to petty crime um, to get by. Um, you know, they were uh, engaging in, you know, ripping off passengers and, and things like this. And at first that's uh, how things were uh, going to go for Chiodi as well. Um, and then uh, they realized that she was out alone with somebody who wasn't um, a male relative, you know, wasn't her husband, wasn't her father, wasn't her brother. and so. Um you know, the question came, what are you doing with a girl so late? Um, directed at her boyfriend? And uh, then they took turns, uh, gang raping uh until she passed out. Um, they manually disemboweled her. um, they beat her with an iron bar, um and they threw both uh, her and her boyfriend out of the uh, bus that they had boarded, um, and left them for dead. And so, you know what really uh, sort of stood out to me with the Jodie Singh case is that um, both the victim and the perpetrator, you know, so clearly fit, you know, this this profile, right, of of people who, uh, on the one hand, were upwardly mobile, and on the other hand, were downwardly mobile, and so, um, you know, that kind of brings us to like the motivation. Why why would that be, you know, so similar? Um, you know why would why would in both uh, cases where where uh, women are the target and where black people in the U.S. South um, were targets, um, why in both cases would it be people who were sort of uh, downwardly mobile um, economically who would be the perpetrators? And so um, this sort of uh, led me to what I call the gender bargain.
2: And what is the gender bargain?
1: The gender bargain um, is sort of the economic explanation for um, why these killings are taking place, because they're not happening just in New Delhi and India. They're not just happening um, in Afghanistan. They're not just happening in Papua New Guinea or South Africa uh, or any of the other um, sort of um, lower income countries where uh, most people think about these these attacks uh, taking place. They're also uh, taking place um, in other forms in the United States as well. So the gender bargain um, is, is sort of a, a derivation of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, classic um, sort of analysis of, of what others have called the racial bargain. So the racial bargain for Du Bois is predicated on um, what academics call the psychological wage. And so the psychological wage is uh, simply the benefit, the sort of emotional or psychological benefit that comes from um, if you were white uh, living in the Deep South, um, you might be poor, but you were at least Mm -hmm. not black. And so um, there's a similar sort of psychological wage that comes from simply not being female. Um, that is really there uh, for, I would say, all societies um, and to some, uh, in some societies, it, certainly there's, there's far more benefit to being male um, than in others. And so uh, this gender bargain is a sort of, if you will, uh, this isn't too much of a pun, a gentleman's bargain um, between um, wealthy elite men and low-income men who... You know, maybe oppressed, who may be, um, you know, unemployed, who may have a very uh, low standard of living, who may have low life expectancy, um, you know, all these sorts of, you know, variables, they're not doing uh, so well on in a class sense, but at least they're not female. And so it's, it's sort of the, that concept of the psychological wage applied so, uh, to gender.
0: It's that uh, this, this, kind of rings with, I guess, my understanding of, uh, I guess, more of the, the, I guess, the racial bargain uh, or the race bargain is is that sort of idea of you have the poor, and when you go back to the 1600s, 1700s, you've got the predominantly rich white male upper class, and then the kind of poorer white, they could be indentured servants, they could be other groups, and they're basically going to them and saying like, okay, guys, look, we understand you have more in common with these other poor minority groups but like we were the you know we're on the same team I think it was uh was it Tim Wise used the phrase like we're we're on the same team we wear the same jersey uh we um we're still part of the same group and like you could possibly be me one day you could be like me one day but, but not them not them because they're not as good as we are and that that what, what I'm I'm kind of taking from, you know, your, your, your story and, and, and when you're talking about this with both the, the racial side with, with lynchings in the South and and with vigilante gender violence is it's sort of this idea of that group that maybe not white in, in other parts of the country, but the male who's maybe down on their luck, but there's that potential that they can get out because, hey, at least they're in that group that could... At least
1: they're male. Exactly, they they have that they have the status of being male in a society where that's important. And so this is you know very related, and and I talk about it in the book to this idea from psychology of status anxiety. Uh, you know, it's it's very much you know this sort of uh, dynamic where um, what it means to be a man is worth less, right, in society. So if you look at agrarian nations, um, those those uh, uh, societies that still have an economy that's largely based on agriculture, as is the case um, still in many parts of uh, India, which is a rapidly industrializing country, um, you know, there's uh, societal changes about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man um, as cities uh, and countries industrialize. And so it's no accident that Um, you know, the attackers of Jyoti Singh, for example, were people who had come from the rural countryside. They were people who had been raised um, in a society where being male and not being female was really, really important. And where, you know, no matter how um, sort of lowly you are on the uh, social ladder, your your value, your social worth is, is going to be more, your status is going to be more um, as a man, and there are going to be certain things that you can do as a man that women aren't allowed to do. So there's a certain sort of psychological wage that you get from being male in a society where women are oppressed. So historically what we see, and this is really true for all societies, this is not, you know, I'm not picking on India here. Um, it, it It is true that as uh, countries um, and societies began to industrialize, um, you know, w- women gain certain rights in societies. And how fast that happens or what specific rights those are, are something that's variable from society to society. But um, the sort of overarching trajectory is is upward. And, you know, for some feminists, that's a controversial statement, um, because it sounds like it's a defense of, you know, industrial capitalism. Um, it's not, it's just a fact. Um, and so I would invite any Um, feminist that, you know, thinks that it's better to be a woman in agrarian society um, to try, you know, living that life for about a year. Um, It's just not, um, there's just no comparison. And so when you compare industrial societies to societies that are uh, very well off um, and that no longer depend on manufacturing um, to sustain their economies, post-industrial societies, um, you know, you, you see an even bigger jump. Um, towards women's equality. And so what happens in those societies is that the, the gender bargain is breached then by the state. By the, and when I say the state, I mean the government. Um, so you know, when, when the state essentially says, uh, no, we're not gonna enforce the gender bargain anymore, women have equal rights or, or you know, more rights than they did before, um, you know, then the sort of uh, gender bargain is breached by the formal state. And so in all mob attacks, you know, anywhere, Steven Pinker has written, you know, very extensively um, about this. I'm sure that you and your listeners are pretty familiar with some of his work. You know, you see mob attacks where states are weak, right? Where you see, um, uh, you know, states uh, not having uh, sort of legitimacy or control entirely or enforcement capability with their uh, citizens. Um, that's where you start to see vigilante groups emerge and so what's happening here in these mob attacks where men are you know all over the world in economies that are changing rapidly and where the uh, status of being male is declining you see these kinds of mob attacks emerging and sometimes they as in the case of Jyoti Singh uh, who lived for uh, 10 days after her attack they end in, in in the death of the victim and sometimes they don't um, and so we can maybe talk a little bit more about, you know, some of those where they don't later. Um, but the, the sort of dynamic of the mob of men, and it is always men, it is never women who are involved in these attacks, uh, uh, you know, and, and typically, um, you know, sort of men who have a, a pretty significant status anxiety, that you know, they're, they're attacking women who are perceived to be violating traditional gender norms in some way, and that could be because you know, they're wearing a short skirt in public, as in Kenya, where um, these mobs have broken out, um, and several other uh, uh, formerly uh, British colonized African nations. Um, the same thing has happened. It's not limited to Kenya. And then you also have um, these attacks occurring um, in other nations all over the world and in the United States. And the one sort of unifying sort of common denominator that all of these societies have is that the uh, society is extremely unequal. So there's a very high degree of social stratification. So what that means is that when the government breaches the gender bargain there's more for the men in lower class men in that society to lose by that breaching whereas you know in a country like say sweden for example uh, whose gender bargain was breached long ago uh you know there's there's a greater degree of equality in that society there's less of a gap between the rich and the poor and so there's less incentive um for um some men to to attempt to uh regain that status via attacks of vigilante gender violence
2: so I guess my question is because you brought up industrialization being a large driver of the status anxiety with men with these attacks. Um with the United States, since we've already kind of industrialized and there's been a lot of conversations about deindustrialization, is that where we see a lot of the uh tension with the gender violence as uh Well,
1: that's a project, yeah. Yeah, I'm working on that right now, oh, actually. Beautiful. Um uh, because yeah. So I mean, that's a really difficult question to pin down to, to to like determine exactly from which region of the country um, you know attacks in the United States take place in. Um, I mean, clearly the perpetrators uh, in the U.S. example are people who um, you know by their own writing are you know pretty disgruntled with um, the the breaching of the gender bargain and pretty disgruntled with the rising status of women. They don't, they don't attempt to hide that. So certainly the uh, sort of motivation is there, but, you know, like we don't necessarily have the data on at this point on, you know, are these people say, you know, writing from, you know, uh, Ohio, right? Are they writing from the Rust Belt? Are they writing from places where um, these kinds of, of changes are taking place? I would, I would guess the answer is yes, um, but that's something that at this point I'm, I'm still trying to pin down. That's like kind of a future book um, uh, kind of a a project. Um, But certainly we we do know um, that they are upset that they're angry about the uh, rise of of women's status in society. And then, you know, they they see it as a zero sum game where, you know, their own status has to then decline um, because women's uh, rise. And uh, we know this because um, these people are carrying out their attacks in a, in a sort of uniquely post-industrial way, and that is in the online world. Mm. So, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah,
2: no, that's what my next question was, was what is going on in America? Because I don't, like, come to mind, like, physical mob violence has not come to mind here in a while.
1: Sure, exactly. Yeah, no, we we don't see um, mobs gathering in the streets uh, here in the United States. This activity um, in in a post-industrial nation like the U.S. um, takes place online. And so you have communities um, like some of the more violent and more, um, you know, sort of malicious aspects of the men's rights community, which is, you know, a a pretty big community. Um, As you probably already know, you can't tire that community all with the same brush. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many different sort of constituencies, as if you would, within that community. Um, and and you know, I, I personally um, think men's rights are a great thing, right? I think human rights are a great thing. Um, and so you know, uh, my quibble comes with the uh, the segment of the men's rights group who who like to attack women in mobs online. And so I'm sure many of your um, listeners are already familiar with Gamergate Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, some of the uh, sort of like online mobbing um, culture that that sociologists at least are, you know, started studying within, intensively within the last five years or so. I think um, at first there was uh, certainly in my discipline, so I'm a sociologist, um, there was, you know, a sense that, well, maybe this isn't something that we need to take too seriously. This will all blow over. This is a joke. Um, And so, yeah, and then so that, sorry, Daniel, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was going to say not quite.
1: Yeah, exactly. Not quite. So, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, when when I think um, the FBI started to take it seriously and when um, sociologists as an academic community started to take it seriously, the, the sort of, uh, I think, tipping point was the first um, sort of incel uh, killing. Mm-hmm. And so some of you guys already know that, you know, the online community, men's rights um, activist community, um, in the U.S. Is, is is quite broad. In fact, I don't even want to call it the men's rights uh, community because that's not really accurate. I, it's sometimes been called the man-over.
2: Yeah, the and red
1: so, pillars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, the red pillars. Uh, so I spend way too much time online um, listening to red pillars. Um, and <laughs> I'm so sorry. Documenting <laughs> them. Yeah, you know, it is actually fairly bleak. Um, it is almost as bleak as as, as the mob killings and um, doing that research. Um, and I say that because you know, sort of that that community, the red pill community um, is so uh, almost uniformly um, very hostile toward um, the idea of women gaining any kind of status in society. Um, and, you know, kind of like what their specific complaints are tend to, to vary from community to community, but there are, you know, several sort of uh, segments of the maniverse that sort of overlap with one another. So it's, you know, it's the red pillars that you mentioned, but it's also, um, Pickup artist community was really where yeah, it started yeah. if you go back far enough. Um, I remember, you know, kind of discovering them during the Great Recession, and I, I really came late to that party uh, because they were already sort of in full force by then, I think, uh, during the Great Recession was when um, sort of one of the, the major figures in, in that community, if, or movement if you want to call it that, um, published um, a book about it that was widely sold. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where most people sort of gained awareness. Um, it was like bang but, yeah, or the, something. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. That's one of them. So, so um, there was, uh, you know, kind of this uh, sort of feeder effect, if you will, um, among these communities, one into another. And so, you know, uh, you know, guys would start with, um, you know, maybe they uh, felt like, you know, they needed to to like polish their game or that they didn't have any game. And so, you know, they would join the uh, pickup artist community. And then they would sort of get fed gradually over time when those tactics didn't work for them they'd end up um, in the incel community Mm -hmm. and so probably many of you already know incel is a a internet shorthand for involuntary celibate and so um it's folks who uh, not to put too fine a point on it think they can't get laid and i say think because uh in fact, probably many of them could get laid, but um, the uh, hatred uh, of women and the negative attitude, um, and and frankly, honestly, probably in many cases, mental health problems um, do keep many uh, folks in the NCEL community um, from getting laid. And so um, that was actually what happened with uh, Elliot Rogers. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was the sort of tipping point I was referring to earlier with where uh, society and the FBI and, you know, sociologists um, started taking this, this community more seriously because um, he was sort of whipped into a frenzy by this mob community online. So these were people who were telling him, you know, man, I wish I could just go out and kill all these women and, um, you know, uh, I hope you do it one day, man, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. And so, you know, there was this sort of like um, online talk about it. Um, and eventually he went out and he did uh, kill a number of uh, women and men um, near uh, Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he became the first sort of, um, you know, uh, you, you might call him, uh, you know, gender you know, vigilante killer, right, in a sense, in the United mm-hmm. States. And there have been, since, since him, there have been a number of copycats, uh, Alex Manassian, for example, who drove um, a van um, onto a crowded sidewalk with the deliberate intent to kill as many women as he could. Um, who, you know, sort of cited him. And of course, Elliot Roger has become a, a popular meme within the NCEL community. Mm-hmm. Every year, um, you know, they celebrate uh, what is called uh, St. Elliot's Day, um, or the Day of Retribution, sometimes it's mm-hmm. also called. Um, and it's replete with, you know, sort of this iconography of Elliot Roger um, and, and his manifesto mm-hmm. um, that he left behind. And so um, in the United States, you know, it's rare to see that sort of bleeding over where where there's actually, you know, sort of real world violence, but there are many, many women who, uh, for example, are, you know, too vocal or perceived as being too vocal um, in in online public spaces, um, or, you know, particularly within the gaming community and the tech industry, um, who will be mobbed by online groups of men. And um, you know have their information docs at the very minimum, or um, sometimes you know their places of business will be um, attacked with like denial of service attacks. And the threat is, you know, if you don't fire this woman, then you know we're going to shut down your business. Mm-hmm. Which you know, in some cases in the tech industry, you can actually do that, right? You can actually really hurt someone's bottom line um, by um, you know engaging in those kinds of attacks in mobs. Mm-hmm.
0: I have. I guess I have. I get two things to, to throw into this, and maybe they're tangentially tied together. Uh, but but on one hand, I mean, we we talked a little bit about you know the nature of that that loss of you know, psychological capital, cognitive capital, uh, the the wage,
1: the psychological wage, yeah.
0: Yes, um, and and that's you know to to, to me it. it thinking about this kind of beyond just that baseline so you have like well at least i'm male in a society where i'm kind of on the bottom rung because a bunch of other economic factors are going on that i don't have a whole lot of control over or and that that, that could even extend into kind of a perception of that as well and so you could have middle class or we would consider middle class to middle to upper class individuals who while they may be doing all right economically there's still that perception because of these online groups like the incel community these certain aspects of the men's rights activist communities um and so like it just you get me thinking a lot about that um there's there's a lot of research on like like threat to to aspects of your identity and so if you feel that your identity is being threatened or this identity is such a core aspect for someone in this group that that's sort of mental perception of at least I'm male becomes such a strong driver because they have kind of nothing else that they're focusing on or if you don't have the job you don't have this relationship you don't have these other aspects of meaning and and so it's just that well at least I'm male and so that that aspect of male identity becomes so prevalent so powerful that any threat to it is likely to be met with some sort of backlash um, some sort of reaction because it it's he it says it's a psychological wage it's psychologically painful for them to have to you know because that I mean, there's a lot of i guess cognitive dissonance that comes in, into play with that, that that if they're if at least i'm male isn't good enough anymore to get me through my day because hey it turns out there's other people that have plenty of the same rights that i do or should have the same rights or i have to maybe say that they have the same rights with then challenges that aspect of me being special because of that that, that it almost mm-hmm. it's almost like triggering or priming that kind of reaction
1: yeah absolutely and I think I think you make a really good point there um, because in the United States at least like the spheres where women are most likely to be attacked um, are you know not like necessarily me going on to Facebook although you know most women, <laughs> You know, public intellectuals will, you know, tell you that their, their comments on social media are typically significantly more negative um, than they are for male public intellectuals, um, that it, as a generality. Um, but no, where they're most likely to be attacked is when they go into historically male-dominated spheres. So just as, you know, Jyoti Singh was attacked because, uh, you know, she's not supposed to be out without a male guardian at night on a public transit, you know, uh, vehicle, the bus that she was attacked on. Um, you know, it, it's very similar, um, you know, for women online in the United States. It's when they venture into um, the tech world, mm. right, which is really notorious for this, this kind of thing, um, or, you know, the online gaming world, which is closely connected. There's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. Right. Um, and so that's, that's where they're most likely to be attacked is when they're perceived as sort of like threatening a male public space. Um, same thing is true in Kenya, you know, where women are attacked for wearing uh, they're mobbed in the streets and, you know, in, in extreme cases, you know, raped with broken beer bottles in public um, for the crime of having worn um, too short a skirt on the street. So again, you know, sort of this public space that has been dominated by men. And so now they're perceived as trespassing into this public space. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and this, I guess, because I wanted to add, I guess, one one thing is, is to just ask, um, and, and this, you mentioned kind of that there's, there's distinctions, that, that it is violence. And typically when we think of this violence, we're thinking of physical violence or you know in cases of either physical violence that leads to extreme bodily harm or to, to the death of the, the victim. Uh, but this can also include things like psychological acts of violence. I and mean, we're talking about death threats online, uh, reaching out or kind of attacking, a business to, to threaten the individual, which can cause a severe amount of stress. Um, and, and the more you kind of bring up the, the women adding spaces, it, it made me think of, and I looked it up real quick, uh, the uh, Liana Rupert uh, from Game Informer who recently wrote about cyberpunk and said, hey, just as a heads up guys, like there's some flashing lights in this that can cause seizures, like just to let everyone know as part of this this article and um, started receiving flashing seizure inducing videos in her emails as a response to that and so like that to me it it kind of seems like it kind of maybe sits on a line because maybe we're not entirely sure who's engaging but this is a sort of a woman in the tech industry it's very similar to a lot of these other cases uh, yeah absolutely would this kind of cross the line into that
1: yeah, there was a case um, that occurred, you know, around the time of Gamergate that to me is like a textbook example of, of what you're talking about. And so um, that was the uh, feminist uh, Anita Sarkeesian, who um, sort of um, stepped into the fray, as it were, yeah. online and, and regretted it. Um, there were a number of things that happened to her, but like kind of the, the one that was most in line with the example you just gave um, was that uh, somebody... Created a video game um, uh, with you know her face, sort of a crude video game with her face pasted in, and the game was called "Beat Up Anita Sarkeesian." Uh, was the name of the game, and and so you know you just like punch this this character, um, and that was that was the game. So um, you know that 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 kind of thing, um, you know, it's it's easy to to write it off like as a sort of one off or like a crude sort of you know. Prepubescent, sort of very juvenile kind of an attack, but um, you know when they're you know sort of um, all the time and every day and they're they're prevalent, um, you know they sort of do add up to a form I think of psychological warfare. I would say I would use the term um, psychological vigilante gender violence over time. Mm-hmm.
2: I wanted to bring up one thing that you mentioned earlier that there's a perception that women's rights is a zero sum game for these men, and you know we've talked a lot about you know industrialization and colonization and deindustrialization and we even call it the psychological wage and so I wonder if the is this a uniquely capitalist kind of framework that we're thinking about rights and our demographic status because if you think about like within this capitalist logic there is a zero-sum game going on whether or not you get your money or not you know you either get the job or you don't
1: Absolutely. And that was the same sort of capitalist logic that underpinned the, you know, sort of W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, observation of of the racial bargain, right, and the racial psychological wage. Um, There really was a zero-sum game going on. And I think it's very telling that these kinds of attacks don't take place um, outside of capitalist countries. And they uh, take place, you know, sort of, um, you know, in the context of extreme social stratification. Mm -hmm. So you know, one of the places in the world where these attacks are the worst, and we haven't really talked about it at this point, but it is actually South Africa, which has the greatest gap between rich and poor of any country in the world. And of course, that's a legacy of uh, colonialism, as you mentioned, um, and the sort of, uh, you know, extreme forms of of capitalism that um, go largely unregulated um, in that economy. It's both things put together. Mm -hmm. And so Like what actual form the the violence takes is is often very culturally specific. Mm. So in Afghanistan, um, it's often stoning. And, you know, people think that that's like, you know, something the government does, but it's not. It's something that, you know, people um, do on the street um, in their communities. You know, if you go to Papua New Guinea, it's gang rape. Um, If you go to uh, South Africa, it takes the uh, form of of what is sometimes called corrective rape. Um, So corrective rape is um, allegedly an attempt to, quote unquote, turn uh, a woman who's lesbian, um, and specifically a butch lesbian woman, into somebody who's straight. And um, of course, uh, this is alleged to be possible through gang rape. So, you know, that's the, the culturally specific form that it takes there. But you don't see corrective rape taking place in Uh, Bolivia, for example, and so in the book, um, actually, I I, uh, offer up um, both Bolivia and the pre-Bolsonaro Brazil um, as example of examples of countries where you you actually have all these social factors um, in place where you would expect to get vigilante gender violence. So you um, historically, both Brazil and Bolivia had very very um, you know, uh, high Gini coefficients, meaning, you know, the, the gap between rich and poor, right? The, the, the higher that number is, the um, bigger the gap. And so they, they were like, actually, Bolivia in particular was was at South Africa levels at one point. So, you know, why didn't we see vigilante gender violence break out? I would argue that it's because, you know, over the last um, 10 to 15 years, actually, in the case of Bolivia, really over the last 20 years, the trajectory of that inequality was downward. So in other words, things got way more equal as opposed to less equal, mm-hmm. right? And, and so at the same time that the government was giving women more rights and enforcing their rights, they were also decreasing social inequality. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm very interested at what's happening in Brazil right now um, under the new government because, of course, it's on a very different trajectory now than it was you know, a couple of years ago. And um, so I'm still still watching to see what happens mm-hmm. there. Um, but Brazil, to a lesser degree, had the same story where through a series of, um, uh, it, it's, told, it's called the uh, Bolsa Familia, um, is the transfer program from, uh, it, it, it's literally a, an income transfer program to poor people um, in Brazil. And um, through that and other programs, um, Brazil also, while it's still a highly unequal country, has managed to make that over tra- all trajectory you know, sort of go downward. Um, so that in both of those nations, we have not yet seen vigilante gender mm-hmm. violence breaking out.
2: Do we know about uh, Vietnam or Cuba?
1: Oh, that's a that's that's phenomenal. Um, yeah, Cuba is kind of tough, right? Um, and uh, but I I I have not seen any data on vigilante gender violence um, for either of those countries. Now, part of that may be because, especially in Cuba, uh, it's difficult to to know you know how accurate data is um, sometimes that. And in fact, that's really true with all countries. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's, there's certainly a, a data issue there in terms of, you know, how, how accurate um, is that data? Often, you know, governments will, um, you know, kind of massage statistics in order to um, represent values that are favorable to themselves. So, you know, all of it really has to be taken with a, a grain of salt. And in fact, that's the case with the um, Gini coefficient that I referenced um, earlier, a lot of folks don't realize that a lot of countries have just kind of stopped reporting that in the last 10 years. And so a lot of the Gini figures we do have are are pretty outdated at this point. Um, And so I think part of that is because the overall trend everywhere is upward, right? So societies are becoming more and more and more unequal and governments are realizing that, oh no, we have a problem. Um, and we don't want people to know how, how bad this problem is. And sometimes it's like a deliberate decision where they just say, okay, we're not going to report anymore. And then sometimes they substitute, um, you know, one measure for another. And, you know, again, sort of, uh, you know, what we would say, at least juke the stats, right, in criminology.
0: Right. They'd have to do something if they reported it. Or <laughs> yeah, least...
1: exactly. Or, or, or they can also be compared to one another reliably. So, for example, a country like, you um, Nigeria, which you know hasn't reported that data in a very long time, can uh, say, "Oh, well, you know, you can't compare us to South Africa because you know that data is like ten years old at this point." So, you know, like what we're trust us, we're doing much better now. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I, I guess as a last thought, um, and and we, we can, then we can sort of wrap up is what's what's the future of this research look like? But we can could also maybe add like like what's going to be the future of awareness or reduction and, and maybe kind of a hopeful outcome um, and and if not if if things look like you know, we're talking about bigger gaps between the rich and the poor um, bigger perceptions of the loss of that psychological wage you know where does where does the future of this I, I guess go I mean does it does it then also move I was thinking as you were talking does this then move into discussions that we're having now um, with kind of like anti-LGBTQ movements or um, the the kind of radical anti-trans feminists?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I think the future of this research is is at this point raising the alarm. So I was actually horrified when I started uh, researching that that nobody had sort of thought about this before. Like I, this is actually the only book still out there uh, on the market that wow. covers um, mob attacks on women, and I had really hoped that you know there would be sort of a base that I could build upon. But that it's really not on many people's radars um, at this point. Now I, I think I, I think it's definitely on the radars of journalists, um, and I've seen this, um, you know, within uh, the last five years really is where I've seen there started. Start to be an organic awareness on the part of journalists that this is you know quote a thing unquote um, and uh, that this is a, a bona fide um, social sociological uh, phenomenon um, I think where where the, the field goes is um, the, the collection of data by specific attacks so the problem we have with data collection right now is really the same problem that Ida B Wells faced when she was, beginning the first, you know, sort of data collection on on lynchings in the United States, which was there were records that people were killed, but they were often um, part of the official homicide statistics. So you would have, you know, a data point that said, um, you know, such and such a person died on such and such a a date, but they didn't say that that person was, you know, um, beaten to death by a mob of 50 people. Um, You know, they just were registered as, you know, an unfortunate homicide. And so that's what we have right now is that that data, you know, uh, at the governmental level um, and, and at the local level, too, is wrapped up in official homicide statistics. So they just get registered as um, femicides. And so, um, you know, I, I hope that, you know, with, with awareness and with data collection and with, you know, ideally one day um, people being aware that this is a very specific sociological phenomenon and that it is to some degree predictable, like it is loosely predictable. You may not be able to predict um, what specific you know, forms the violence will take or where exactly, like within a country, it'll break out. But while I was writing the book, um, I said that, you know, this, I was writing uh, the, the last uh, couple of chapters and you know, I said, you know, this is something that is likely going to start happening in Chile. And um, it did, it started happening. Um, and so the victims in that case were, were kind of like in South Africa. The, the targets were butch lesbian women who were in public spaces and viewed as transgressing gender norms. So, you know, I, I, I think that um, the future of this research is making governments and the public aware that it's a problem, that it's a specific kind of a problem, and that it's different from um, sort of domestic violence or femicides or... Uh, certainly, there's there's an, an, a tendency to in, um, uh, in in majority Islamic countries to conflate this with um, you know sort of religious practice, and it, it's actually not. It it has nothing to do at all with religious practice. It happens in the United States among people who consider themselves atheists. So um, it is it is uh, not related um, to religious practice, but there there's a tendency to. Um, to conflate the two. So kind of teasing out those distinctions and, and you know, hopefully people doing more research on it. Um, I'd love to, for the day to come when, you know, as with lynchings in the United States, um, you know, there's really not so much data anymore because they're not happening on a wide scale. Um, that would be wonderful. And I think I could live to see that happen. I, I hope that I can, if, if not myself, then uh, my daughter can live to see that happen. Um, but we're not there yet at a global level.
0: So I guess I'll end us with our bias of the week, and then we'll, we'll, we'll bid, bid adieu to our guests. Um, like I said, I, I try to find something that, that maybe at least tangentially relates um, to, to what we're talking about. Um, and so the, the bias of the week is, is reactive devaluation, Stillinger, Eppelbaum, uh, Keltner, and Ross, 1990, and it's uh, devaluing proposals only because they purportedly originated with an adversary.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Anita Sarkeesian. Like, your feminist sociologist coming into a gamer space, obviously, they're not going to like that. So even when she does fair critiques, they're not taken up.
1: Sure, and so I think that, you know, in order for, um, you know, I mean, there's a certain sense in which um, perhaps, you know, speaking to people uh, on this podcast is a little bit like, you know, preaching to the converted or preaching to the choir. In in a sense, um, you know, because I'm I'm assuming that most of your listeners are good people who don't think that women should be killed by mobs. <laughs> um, but you know, if you're you're so. you, you're you're looking at yeah, I hope so too. Um, but but uh, you know, if, if if you know you're trying to reach um, the population of men, uh, especially in the developing world, but also in the you know gamer verse that you're talking about, that um, maybe feels really resentful about the increasing status of women. Um, you know, it's going to take everybody working together. Um, So in India, you know, the the positive, if if you can say that there was, you know, any uh, lemonade to be made from those lemons, um, you know, the positive aspect was that um, civil society, including men, and in fact, um, in some cases led by men, um, really did come forward to um, say that to stand up and say that this is not okay, and that, you know, things are changing, and that, you know, women can't be um, killed because they're, you know, not um, obeying gender norms. And so, you know, there there certainly is, I think, a place for men in the discussion. I mean, in fact, it's critical. It just as lynching attacks on Black people in the U.S. South um, probably would not have ended through African American effort alone. Right. Um, and there needed to be, you know, white people who said, no, this isn't okay. You know, law enforcement officers who held lynchers accountable. Um, you know, uh, court officials who were white who said, you know, we're we're going to start prosecuting these cases. Um, you know, it there it has to be everybody. Um, it's not something that I think women can do or should have to do on their own. Mm. Um, and I think there there is very definitely um, a place for men um, to do some of this research as well.
2: Great, yeah, no, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you. Um, we like flirting with sociology on our psychology podcast because. We always have just fantastic conversations. Um, we will definitely link your book in the description as well yes. so people can get a hold of that. The only uh, vigilante gender violence book on the market.
1: <laughs> yes, it is the only mob attack book on the market, too. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Uh, you can read the first chapter for free on Amazon if you like. Oh, beautiful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah,
0: th- thank you again for joining us.
1: Thank you both so much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Mm
0: All right. So I, I guess with that, we'll we'll bid our listeners adieu. Goodbye.